Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. If you like what you hear, please make sure to like, follow, and subscribe. And now, on with our story time. On the following day, Carter walked up the street of the pillars to the turquoise temple and talked with the high priest, Onoth Horthoth is chiefly worshipped in Selephias. All of the great ones are mentioned in diurnal prayers, and the priest was reasonably versed in their moods. Like a tall and distant Ulthar, he strongly advised against any attempt to see them, declaring that they are testy and capricious, and subject to strange protection from the mindless other gods from outside whose soul and messenger is the crawling chaos near Lothotep. Their jealous hiding of the marvelous Sunset City showed clearly that they did not wish Carter to reach it, and it was doubtful how they would regard a guest whose object was to see them and plead before them. No man had ever found Kadath in the past, and it might be just as well if none ever found it in the future. Such rumors, as were told about that onyx castle of the Great Ones, were not by any means reassuring. Having thanked the orchid-crowned priest, Carter left the temple and sought the bazaar of the sheep butchers, where the old chiefs of Selephias cats dwelt, sleek and contented. That gray and dignified being, was sunning himself on the onyx pavement and extended a languid paw as his caller approached. But when Carter repeated the passwords and introductions furnished him by the old cat general of Ulthar, the furry patriarch became very cordial. He told much of the secret lore known to cats on the seaward slopes of Uthnargai. Best of all, he repeated several things told him furtively by the timid waterfront cats of Selephias, and about the men of Inganok, on whose dark ships no cat would go. It seems that these men have an aura not of earth about them, though that is not the reason why no cat will sail on their ships. The reason for this is that Inganok holds shadows which no cat can endure so that in all the cold twilight realm there is never a cheering purr or a homely mew, whether it be because of things wafted over the impassable peaks from hypothetical lang, or because of things filtering down from the chilly desert to the north, none may say. But it remains a fact that in that far land there broods a hint of outer space which cats do not like, and to which they are more sensitive than men. Therefore, they will not go on the dark ships that seek the basalt quays of Inganok. The old chief of the cats also told him where to find his friend, King Kyrenes, who in Carter's latter dreams, in the rose-crystal palace of the Seventy Delights at Selephias, and in the turreted cloud castle of sky-floating Seranian, it seems that he could no more find content in those places, but had formed a mighty longing for the English cliffs 
and downlands of his boyhood, where in little dreaming villages, England's old songs hover at evening behind lattice windows, and where great church towers peep lovely through the verdure of distant valleys. He could not go back to these things in the waking world because his body was dead, but he had done the next best thing and dreamed a small tract of such countryside in the region east of the city, where meadows roll gracefully up from sea cliffs to the foot of Tenarian Hills. There he dwelt in a grey Gothic manor house of stone, overlooking the sea. He tried to think it was ancient Trevor Towers, where he was born, and where thirteen generations of his forefathers had first seen the light and on the coast nearby. He had built a small Cornish fishing village with steep cobbled ways, settling therein such people as had the most English faces, and seeking ever to teach them the dear-remembered accents of old Cornwall fishers. And in a valley not far off, he had reared a great Norman abbey, whose tower he could see from the window, placing around it in the churchyard grey stones with the names of his ancestors carved thereon, and with a moss somewhat like old England's moss. For though Curanus was a monarch in the land of dream, with all imagined pomps and marvels, splendors and beauties, ecstasies and delights, novelties and excitements at his command, he would gladly have resigned forever the whole of his power and luxury and freedom for one blessed day. One blessed day as a simple boy in that pure and quiet England, that ancient, beloved England, which had molded his being and of which he must always be immutably a part. So when Carter bade that old great chief of the cats adieu, he did not seek the terraced palace of Rose Crystal, but walked out the eastern gate and across the daisied fields towards a peak gable, which he glimpsed through the oaks of a park sloping up the sea cliffs. And in time, he came to a great hedge and a gate with a small brick lodge. And when he rang the bell, there hobbled to admit him no robed and anointed lackey of the palace, but a small, stubbly old man in a smock who spoke as best he could in the quaint tones of far Cornwall. And Carter walked up the shady path between trees, as near as possible to England's trees, and climbed the terraces among gardens set out as in Queen Anne's time. At the door, flanked by stone cats in the old way, he was met by a whiskered butler in suitable livery, and was presently taken to the library where Curanus, Lord of Uthnargai, and the sky around Serenian, sat pensive in a chair. He was by the window, looking on his little seacoast village, and wishing that his old nurse would come in and scold him, because he was not ready for that hateful lawn party at the Vikers, with the carriage waiting, and his mother, nearly out of patience. Curanus, clad in a dressing gown of the sort favored by London tailors in his youth, rose eagerly to meet his guest. 
for the sight of an Anglo-Saxon from the waking world was very dear to him, even if it was a Saxon from Boston, Massachusetts, instead of from Cornwall. And for long they talked of old times, having much to say because both were old dreamers and well-versed in the wonders of incredible places. Curanus, indeed, had been out beyond the stars in the ultimate void, and was said to be the only one who had ever returned sane from such a voyage. At length, Carter brought up the subject of his quest, and asked of his host those questions he had asked of so many others. Curanus did not know where Kadoth was, or the marvelous Sunset City, but he did know that the Great Ones were very dangerous creatures to seek out, and that the other gods had strange ways of protecting them from impertinent curiosity. He had learned much of the other gods in distant parts of space, especially in that region where form does not exist, and colored gases study the innermost secrets. The violet gas of Signac had told him terrible things of the crawling chaos of Larthotep, and had warned him never to approach the central void where the demon sultan Azathoth gnaws hungrily in the dark. Altogether, it was not well to meddle with the Elder Ones, and if they persistently denied all access to the marvelous Sunset City, it were better not to seek that city. Curanus furthermore doubted whether his guest would profit aught by coming to the city, even were he to gain it. He had dreamed and yearned long years for lovely Selephias and the land of Uthnargai, and for the freedom and color and high experience of life devoid of its chains, conventions, and stupidities. But now, now he was come into that city and that land, and was the king thereof. He found the freedom and the vividness all too soon worn out, and certainly monotonous for want of linkage with anything firm in his feelings and memories. He was a king in Uthnargai, but found no meaning therein, and drooped always for the old familiar things of England that had shaped his youth. All his kingdom would he give for the sound of Cornish church bells over the downs, and all the thousand minarets of Selephias for the steep, homely roofs of the village near his home. So he told his guest that the unknown Sunset City might not hold quite the content he sought, and that perhaps it had better remain a glorious and half-remembered dream. For he had visited Carter often in the old waking days, and knew well the lovely New England slopes that had given him birth. At the last he was very certain the seeker would long only for the early remembered scenes, the glow of Beacon Hill at evening, the tall steeples and winding hill streets of quaint Kingsport, the hoary gamble roofs of ancient and witch-haunted Arkham, and the blessed miles of meads and valleys where stone walls rambled and white farmhouse gables peeped out from bowers of verdure. These things he told Randolph Carter, but still the seeker held to his purpose. 
and in the end they parted each with his own conviction, and Carter went back through the bronze gate into Selephiace, and down the street of the pillars to the old seawall. Here he talked more with the mariners of far parts, and waited for the dark ship from cold and twilight Ingenok, whose strange-faced sailors and onyx traders had in them the blood of the great ones. One starlight evening, when the pharaohs shone splendid over the harbor, the longed-for ship put in, and strange-faced sailors and traders appeared one by one and group by group in the ancient towers along the seawall. It was very exciting to see again those living faces, so the godlike features on the Grenach, but Carter did not hasten to speak with the silent seamen. He did not know how much of pride and secrecy and dim, supernal memory might fill those children of the Great Ones, and was sure it would not be wise to tell them of his quest or ask too closely of that cold desert stretching north of their twilight land. They talked little with the other folk in those ancient sea taverns, but would gather in groups in remote corners and sing among themselves the haunting airs of unknown places, or chant long tales to one another in accents alien to the rest of dreamland. And so rare and moving were those airs and tales that one might guess their wonders from the faces of those who listened, even though the words came to common ears only a strange cadence and obscure melody. For a week, the strange seamen lingered in the taverns and traded in the bazaars of Selephias, and before they sailed, Carter had taken passage on their dark ship, telling them he was an old onyx miner and wishful to work in their quarries. That ship was very lovely and cunningly wrought, being of teakwood, with ebony fittings and traceries of gold, and the cabin in which the traveler lodged had hangings of silk and velvet. One morning, at the turn of the tide, the sails were raised and the anchor lifted, and as Carter stood on the high stern, he saw the sunrise blazing walls and bronze statues and golden minarets of ageless Selephias sink into the distance and the snowy peak of Mount Aaron grow smaller and smaller. By noon, there was nothing in sight save the gentle blue of the Cyrenian Sea, with one painted galley afar off bound for that cloud-hung realm of Cyrenian, where the sea meets the sky. And night came with gorgeous stars, and the dark ship steered for Charles's wain, and the little bear as they swung slowly round the pole. And the sailors sang strange songs of unknown places, and then stole off one by one to the forecastle, while the wistful watchers murmured old chants and leaned over the rail to glimpse the luminous fish playing in bowers beneath the sea. Carter went to sleep at midnight and rose in the glow of a young morning thinking that the sun seemed farther south than it was wont. And all through the second day, he made progress in knowing the men of the ship, getting them little by little to talk of their cold twilight land with their exquisite onyx city. 
and of their fear of the high and impassable peaks beyond which Lang was said to be. They told him how sorry they were that no cats would stay in the land of Inganok, and how they thought the hidden nearness of Lang was to blame for it. Only the stony desert to the north they would not talk. There was something disquieting about that desert, and it was the thought expedient not to admit its existence. On later days, they talked of the quarries in which Carter said he was going to work. There were many of them, for all the city of Inganok was built of onyx, whilst great polished blocks of it were traded in Rhinar, Orgrothan, and Zelophias, and at home with the merchants of Thra, Elernek, and Kadatharan, for the beautiful wares of those fabulous ports. And far to the north, almost in that cold desert, whose existence the men of Inganok did not care to admit, there was an unused quarry, greater than all the rest, from which had been hewn in forgotten times such prodigious lumps and blocks that the sight of their chiseled vacancies struck terror to all who beheld. Who had mined those incredible blocks, and whether they had been transported no men might say, but it was thought best not to trouble that quarry, around which such inhuman memories might conceivably cling. So it was left all alone in the twilight, with only the raven and the rumored Shantak bird to brood on its immensities. When Carter heard of this quarry, he was moved to deep thought, for he knew from old tales that the Great One's castle, atop unknown Kadath, is of onyx. Each day, the sun wheeled lower and lower in the sky, and the mists overhead grew thicker and thicker. And in two weeks, there was not any sunlight at all, but only a weird gray twilight shining through a dome of eternal cloud by day, and a cold, starless phosphorescence from under the side of that cloud by night. On the twentieth day, a great jagged rock in the sea was sighted from afar, the first glimpse of land since Aaron's snowy peak had dwindled behind the ship. Carter asked the captain the name of that rock, but was told that it had no name, and had never been sought by any vessel because of the sounds that came from it at night. And when, after dark, a dull and ceaseless howling arose from that jagged, granite place, the traveler was glad that no stop had been made, and that the rock had no name. The seamen prayed and chanted till the noise was out of earshot, and Carter dreamed terrible dreams within dreams in the small hours. Two mornings after that, there loomed far ahead and to the east, a line of great gray peaks whose tops were lost in the changeless clouds of that twilight world. And at the sight of them, the sailors sang glad songs, and some knelt down on the deck to pray, so that Carter knew they were come to the land of Inganok, and would soon be moored to the basalt quays of the great town bearing that land's name. Toward noon, a dark coastline appeared, and before three o'clock, there stood out against the north the bulbous domes 
and fantastic spires of the Onyx City. Rare and curious did that archaic city rise above its walls and quays, all of delicate black with scrolls, flutings, and arabesques of inlaid gold. Tall and many-windowed were the houses, and carved on every side with flowers and patterns, whose dark symmetries dazzled the eye with a beauty more poignant than light. Some ended in swelling domes that tapered to a point, others in terraced pyramids, or on rose-clustered minarets displaying each phase of strangeness and imagination. The walls were low, and pierced by frequent gates, each under a great arc, rising high above the general level, and capped by the head of a god, chiseled with that same skill displayed in the monstrous face on distant Negranek. On a hill in the center rose a sixteen-angled tower, greater than all the rest, and bearing a high, pinnacled belfry, resting on a flattened dome. This, the seaman said, was the temple of the Elder Ones, and was ruled by an old high priest, sad, with inner secrets. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams. Good night.